0: welcome to the stories or soul food podcast with your hosts brian cole and best-selling author nd wilson this audio is brought to you by cannonball books and great homeschool conventions
1: Welcome to Stories Are Soul Food. One question, I sasf.
2: think sasf hashtag sasf. I think it'll catch on. Sasf. I, I think it will. People suggested
1: alternates, and I thought no, sasf is the way that we will do it. Stories are soul food. Yep, because they are soul food. We can't change that. They're not other things. They're mm. soul food. We've
2: done more episodes than thirty now, so you can okay. listen to one every day of a, <laughs> of a month. <laughs> have a month okay and then you can repeat (laughs) and you have a year and by the (laughs) end
1: of that 30 days we will have recorded four more (laughs) yeah (laughs) so you if you started now at the beginning you could go four days into the next month perfect yeah so welcome back to our 30 something episode yeah of stories or soul food what are we talking about bk
2: The question that that I had, and this is something I think Christians are terrible about talking about. How come all artists or so many artists have such messed up lives? And what do you do Mm. with an artist or an author who has a messed up Uh. personal life? So that's one direction of the questions. The other one's just heading into Ashtown. But uh, this is one I keep seeing bad takes on. Let's start there then. Why do so many artists seem to have messed up personal lives? Very unhappy. I'm thinking of um well, I'm thinking of many of the major novelists.
1: Yeah, so that's tough. I mean, I think that there's a belief in the artistic world that you have to. And people seek it out. Artists seek out authenticity via drama. And that can be internal personal struggles, internal demons, personal demons, or that can be familial, relational, you know, big picture drama. They wanna they kind of know, I think, instinctively that you have to live in the crucible. You know, the grapes have to get trampled. They have to be trod. Oh, uh, The whiskey has to be distilled. And there's, there's kind of an instinctive uh, move that direction. So art comes from, like wine, like whiskey, art comes from suffering. And that's... And you think that that's accurate. That's how life works. I think that is there is some accuracy to it. And not nearly as much as people think. But I think that it's it's sort of a basic affirming of the consequent where they see there are look at this great artist or this great art came from this person who, you know, suffered and struggled. Therefore, if I suffer and struggle, I I too will be a great artist. And so that basic fallacy I think has led many, many aspiring artists into dark and deviant places. But then there's also just a truth that there's kind of a, a, a strange insanity in artists. And I think it's by design. And I, I don't mean that really. I don't mean actually a screw loose insane, but definitely not pragmatist. Hmm. To be an artist, you have to be, you cannot be pragmatic. You have to be a little bit obsessive. Yeah. You, you have to be willing to just go too far. <laughs> <laughs> go too far and for too long trying to make something great but to what end I mean it's a sandcastle and you're it's all going to go away and you're going to go away and it's all vapor and so you think about that struggle I think it, basically I think artists live with Ecclesiastes very very close to their bosoms <laughs> there you go do you feel that as a novelist yeah absolutely I do and there's there's um I think basically I think there's a lot of There's a lot of people who, who go through hard things and it, it does give them the ability to serve up a vintage. They've gone through a crucible and so they, you know, they have something. There's others who think they have to, you know, I have to have because others did and they affirm the consequent, but then there's just the truth that in order to sit down and write and write and write and write and and care about people who don't exist. And to care deeply about people who don't exist, <laughs> and to really, you know, put yourself into it, to really pour yourself out into something that you think of as a meal, as something that's going to just go away. And I'm going to, I'm going to really, really pour a year and a half into this, and then a twelve year old's going to come up to me and say, "I read that in a day." <laughs> and it's like great. That's there's this Ecclesiastes presence. Okay, so the first. The first half of Ecclesiastes,
2: obviously, all is vapor.
1: Yep. And then you also have the desire to, for it to have mattered. Right. You know, you really want it to matter. You really, like, I just gave a ton of time to this. And it's, that's not pragmatic. Yeah. And we know that a lot of the greatest novelists, a lot of the greatest artists never made a bunch of money in their own lifetimes. They never got wildly famous. There's a bunch of people who want to be authors as I've said many times and probably even on this podcast, a bunch of people who want to be authors because it is seen culturally as the way to fame and fortune untold riches and fame without looks, talent.
2: (laughs) Yeah. uh, Athletic ability ability. and singing ability. Yeah. So
1: either uh, you have no musical ability, you have no athletic ability and you have no acting and you're, and you're not beautiful. And so what's the path for you? (laughs) Like, what is the path for me to untold riches and fame if I am unattractive, unathletic, and unmusical? It's like well, uh, politics or, <laughs> or, or or writing. So start lying to everyone you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and so a lot of people aspire to it, or they just think they could do it because they want to matter, they want to create something that matters, but they're not as they're not obsessive enough, they're not strange enough to really put their shoulder to a grindstone when that grindstone is. The creation of a sandcastle and imaginary characters who live there. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's, re- so there's a futility to it that is way up on the, you know, way up the charts. So I understand. I think that's why as a class, artists tend to be weird. We, we tend to be odd. We tend to keep odd schedules. We tend to write until four in the morning because we couldn't stop. Right. You know, something was going. Yeah. And it's it's just tough, you know, to have a pragmatic, simple nine to five life if you are a creator of stuff. It's just yeah. it's just weird, and people do do it, okay. but it's, it's 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 it is accomplished by people. It's just not the norm. So you think the writer's block, the inspiration of the muse,
2: all those things kind of play into yep something. So um, and and they
1: there's also an, an artist pride, like there's a weird inverted pride about being dysfunctional about you know keeping weird hours being weirdly compulsive being uh creatively obsessive that they take pride in it's one of the it's it happens to everybody a lot of families ethnicities of uh, temperaments lots of people take pride in their vices in their weaknesses whether they make them their virtues their badges of honor and artists can do that and they can inflate their weirdness and it's not that strange you're not that weird you're just a person trying to make stuff up for money <laughs> and and but that doesn't sound fun so i i need to be kind of this tortured cape and beret thing yeah and i think i think the healthiest authors pursue it like a woodcarver, like a craftsman and there's no we don't think of them as like tortured yeah you know tortured or dysfunctional Beverly Cleary, for example. <laughs> yeah. But then if you take somebody who's a, a craftsman and they, they love carving wood, they love they love carving, you will find them sometimes at three in the morning carving.
2: Yeah. You if know, you, you will. Sir, if you dig into
1: what a craftsman is good at yeah.
2: and get someone, you know, your uncle talking.
1: Yeah, and really find out what it's like. Yeah, you then you'll discover a lot of the same traits. It just doesn't come with the cape and beret, right? You know, and the uh, the social the media A-list, following, yeah, the A less <laughs> yeah. <A-list> celebrity stuff. <laughs> Where I have to, I have to be weird. I have to sell my weirdness so that people believe I'm a genius. <laughs> you know, I, I have to. And that's got to be market too, because yep, absolutely, the publisher is trying to
2: make this author stick in your mind yep. and not a blue ocean.
1: But the thing is that it is you can get a lot more done by being a stable person. That doesn't mean you're a pragmatist. It doesn't mean that you are coloring inside the lines of a normal nine to five work week. But if you're stable, there's a, there's a huge of huge upside.
2: That has to go back to to the stable creation. Yeah. It has (laughs) to go back to the romantics, this idea that, that the, you know, the divine sort of transcends and all of a sudden you're, pumping out crazy amounts of poetry like Rilke and then killing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after having done this work of art. Yep. Um, like I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everything is, you know, I wrote 50 sonnets in two weeks and now I'm so sick. I can I, <laughs> I may as well
1: die. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that there's, that goes back to the romantic era, but I think that that was the era that affirmed the consequent. I think that's where. Right. That's where the affirming of the consequent happened. There's enough, there's enough weirdness around the artistic temperament just enough that if you really pursue it with with love and with passion you know you're really really grinding then people you know they want to be seen that way too they want to be seen as a genius i think you're right about that pride inflate it inflate it inflate it and make your vice a virtue and brag about it and market yourself as extra weird and try to try to get attention
2: the Diff- philosophers
1: did that too, right? Yep. Differentiate with, uh, yourself. Try to differentiate yourself by your weirdness. And yeah, walking the lobster down the French. Yeah, the the
2: French streets. Oh if yeah, you want to be the guy. You can't just think you have to be the character.
1: Yeah. So if you're Salvador Dali, you're an you're an artist. Like, what do you need to do? Well, you need to wear a deep sea diving helmet to a cocktail party. You need to do yeah weird stuff and have a psycho mustache and you know like, and you're selling yourself constantly for Tom Wolfe. You decide to wear a white suit everywhere, and he did that initially because he was poor and only had a white suit. And <laughs> I but he's that. like, but <laughs> so now I'm going to make this my my trademark. And yeah. the, the first time I ever met with him, he was wearing a blue velvet cape and a blue velvet fedora over his white suit, and it was all panache and brand at that point. <laughs>
2: yeah, you
1: know, just just marketing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, yeah. but I think it's the same thing. It's okay. the exact same thing as when somebody. Is trying to market to an audience, and so they inflate their their torturedness, they inflate their sorrows, they inflate their damage. Or
2: you want someone who's trying to market to the Tolkien, and they start smoking a pipe, put yep. the
1: put the tweed jacket yep. on, put on the tweed jacket, drop yep. the Kentucky accent, right? Start going with a little bit of Oxford, yeah. Let the Oxford accent overwhelm your twang, yeah. Walter Hooper, <laughs> here's looking at you, <laughs> um, Madonna, <laughs> right. <laughs> But it's, it's been done many times. So I think that there's there's branding and there's insecurity and there's personal identity that's wrapped up in all of it. But ultimately, it comes down to pride and just trying to sell, trying to sell yourself, trying to get people to believe that you're the real deal. And I think a lot of times trying to get yourself to believe that you're the real deal. Yeah. So, well,
2: there has to be that aspect when you're on a deadline and you have to get something done that you do have to get emotionally invested in finishing, right? Yeah, you, you, ha- you, you, you have, have to-, to be
1: into it. If you're a professional writer, you have to get good at finding the levers of motivation and throwing them. You can't yeah. sit around and wait for inspiration. A, as much fun as that is, when you are truly inspired, when your lightning bolt hits you and you take off writing, that's a blast. But overwhelmingly, it's not that way. And you have to know how to make yourself go do it. And that is not something, that's something professionals do. That's not something tortured geniuses do. And so the artist class kind of they they prevent themselves from from really ever being known as the person who meets deadlines.
2: <laughs> <laughs> are are you with your works, how many of them have been written in a flash of inspiration? Or is it several times in a work you'll have a flash of inspiration?
1: There are flashes of inspiration in all of it, but Lee Pike Ridge is the one book that was just a yeah, a bolt from the blue. And then um the setup and the characters of Ashtown were very much that way but that was different because i was you know i was going on long walks and lying in the dark staring at the ceiling and you know just i was looking for it right you know it's and it's all that creative work that doesn't look like work you know it's like reading and thinking and yeah you know the hot showers in the dark you know like really excruciatingly painful showers in the dark <laughs> while i'm playing around with different worlds and character setups and is that your move for writer's block? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I would say it's my move for solving problems. Gotcha. Uh, you know, it's like it's uh, sensory deprivation with mm. and with everything pain? except for <laughs> something that keeps you alert. Right. So you can't fall asleep in two. Once, of a yeah. It's one. It's the same thing as like sitting on a really uncomfortable chair and saying I'm not going to move until I have this problem solved. You know, it's like it's that kind of a. Oh, one <laughs> of those levers you're talking about self-motivation yeah just like okay i have to i have to focus i have to solve this i have to put these pieces together how am i going to do that the long walk this is why you know i mean i think authors artists have awfully addictive personalities often they're a bit obsessive and so they can get their vices too they can they can start drinking too much they can be smokers drug users right and then they'll be proud of that fact or proud of that struggle right And even the Uh, ones who've defeated it and put it in the past, you know, in retrospect, they could look back at how did they get into that? How did it happen in the first place? And they could still be proud of it or they could, you know, talk about it like what it was, which was slavery.
2: Yeah. Right. I'm reminded of dumb bands. Death Cab for Cutie. Yeah. Ben Gibbard said he had to be in a relationship to write an album. And that was, that was something he was channeling kind of. Yeah. a sort of gross emotionality into yep. his music, which if you listen to his music makes sense. Yep. But it does seem
1: exactly what you're talking about. You can do that in a healthy way or an unhealthy yep. way. Realizing that you are Pavlov and you are Pavlov's dog. At <laughs> the like, same time. And you have to figure out, you know, just routines that will provoke work. Because when
2: the bell rings, you got to be ready to- Yep. You got to be ready to eat. <laughs> yeah. And for you, writing silent bells- Yeah. That's that's not like you can just sit and write when you feel like it. <laughs> nope. Nope. It's almost like you have to gussy up the Yeah, it is really 14 funny. So, times in a row. <laughs> yeah, yep.
1: And I, it's super weird. It's a completely different experience. But so we just sent out chapter fourteen of Silent Bells and the number of people I've heard from where it's just kinda like, Listen, I'm sorry this one's late. I had an emergency surgery, okay? I had my gallbladder out. It slowed my roll a little bit you know it's it's it is pretty funny and that's a very very different situation and i would say silent bells has thrown off my other work a lot you know just yeah. because my other work is usually i usually submerge in a project and then finish it and this one like I, silent bells drags me back out of these other projects to go finish the next chapter and send out the the issue so i'm definitely growing as an author through this process or just failing, one or the other. <laughs> it's going to be grow or fail. Out of the pain comes and the wine. So, For those of you who don't know, Silent Bells is book four of the Ashton Burial series. We're going to start um, talking through Ashton, I think, next week. Okay. So Silent Bells is book four, which I'm currently publishing in serial. Chapter 14 just went out. We'll probably get to chapter 23. A la Charles Dickens. Yeah. Except you aren't paid by the word. And nope. <laughs> um, I actually am really enjoying it, and I am, I've am. i wanted to do this for a long time, and so I'm. I'm very tempted to roll out my my kids' newspaper at the end of this. It's not a serialized novel, but it's actually just a, a kids' monthly, yeah, with short stories and cartoons and yeah, uh, dragging in author friends of mine to write stuff and right. We'll see. We'll see well, if that happens yeah. or not. But I kind of want to.
2: Man, I've got the benefit of watching you write as it goes, and that's been also fascinating. Because I don't, I can't think of the <laughs> Why, last time. Brian? Why? <laughs> well, you know, Nate, we don't talk all about it to the artists till they're done with their work. <laughs> Why it's fascinating? I think the the step by step process of how you motivate and mobilize something that is not yet complete. Because books are done. Yeah. You know, in chapter four, you know that no matter what happens, they bring introduce a new character, and that character's yeah has his arc set in stone. Yep. Yeah doesn't feel that way with your with no it's not that way with the first 14 chapters i don't know what's going to happen there's a kind of uh interesting sort of uh uncertainty with it that i am it's 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 kind of addictive
1: I. Can they're see. all gonna die brian they're all gonna die <laughs> yeah. that's what's gonna happen you know
2: i am worried you might do that
1: <laughs> it's ragnarok
2: right yeah all of a
1: sudden nate jumps from
2: <laughs> American
1: Americana to the north and just the darkness the nihilism of the yeah, north yeah yeah it's uh, writing in serial has been very very interesting and for those of you who are um, not receiving the serialized novel I forgive you uh, yeah. it's okay but it will in the end this has just been a a, a way for me to successfully create a rough draft because right. I couldn't the the length of a novel is such that I couldn't take that amount of time off To write a rough draft. And so I've tried it this way to like, okay, so can I fit it in chapter to you know a couple chapters a month? And it's been fun. I mean, really, it really has been. And those of you who
2: haven't subscribed can make up for it
1: by rating this podcast (laughs) (laughs) Uh, on staying. Tipping these podcasters. (laughs) Oh yep. Do we have a tip button, Brian? Buy us some coffee, guys. I know, right? Um, but basically the it's enabled me to create a rough draft. I will then go back over. That rough draft and it will be edited and it will eventually become a final draft and arrive as a volume so it will become yeah. available this is just something that's facilitated the creation of the rough draft for those many many thousands of fans who are yelling at me about not having finished the series so i gave them a chance to like put their money where their mouth was and they did they overwhelmingly did and they've yeah. made it possible so i'm very grateful to them yeah
2: that's cool. I, uh, the whole topic of this artistic inspiration, dark darkness of the soul yeah. or darkness of life turn into great things mm-hmm. is inspired by a question. I think from Mandy is, was her name asking, Mandy. how do you, how do you talk to your kids about authors with problems? And I'm trying to think of a good example of a children's author with, um, with personal struggles. Oh, I, I, you know, or weird stuff. I guess Lewis Carroll's probably the poster child. And I don't know that you need to
1: um, go into that with your you kids. You know, I actually, I don't know that I have. Talked you know, about it or? Yeah, I, I don't think I have. I and mean, we've talked about where authors are coming from when it relates directly to what's on the page. You know, if, we're, yeah. you know, if I'm talking to my daughter about Russian uh, novelists or we're talking about dystopian fiction and she's she's been on a binge of dystopian novels the classics Brave New World 1984 etc yeah, right after the Russians so her light summer reading <laughs> Um, you know we have conversations there but overwhelmingly it's about what's on the page yeah
2: so I don't think the author's life is relevant to your kid enjoying that
1: story unless it shows up on the page right and the author's life is relevant to whether you become a huge fan of that author. And promote them. Yeah. And you start following that author and I am a fan of that author, not of this book. Yeah. You're not engaging with the art. But I, I really don't think that once a book's published, once a story's told, I don't think the author has any authority over it at all once it's out there.
2: Yeah. So J.K. And,
1: Rowling coming back and trying to- Yeah. Modify things in retrospect. is like, nope. Sorry. Yeah. You've released if it. If you wanted it that way- yeah, should have put it on the page? Yeah, cuz um, now we don't have to. Yeah, exactly. So we don't have to listen to you once it's published. And that is the I think that's the case with all art.
2: So So we take someone like Jack London, you know, yeah. died of heroin overdose, I think, or right? something or something like that. Eaten by wolves. One hopes that would have been <laughs> fitting. But I think he lived in California at the time, so that was un- <laughs> that was unlikely. You don't have to get into the bleakness of his end except that his stories except that it makes sense it makes sense yeah so his stories so, are depressing and there are not happy endings we
1: read these jack london stories and we look at the jack london story and you say oh this makes sense yeah um,
2: Will, william faulkner
1: he would
2: take what was it a fifth of whiskey and start drinking in the morning and writing and then yep.
1: you can tell yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can tell that that's the case uh actually when you learn more about uh the life of Charles Dickens, it makes sense too. Okay, like this—the the self-loathing and the sentimentality that was there on he, the on the page is clearly a networking of his own guilt and his own. He left his wife right towards the. Yeah, end. he was a he was a child abusing, horrible, horrible person. He was that. See, there you go. He yeah. was that guy beating Oliver Twist. I mean, that's that's who he was. Wow, he was that horrible, you know, factory boss. He's that guy. In his stories. That's the kind of thing we can pray for mercy for that you, when you get
2: your <laughs> eyes shown to your own self <laughs> yeah. and then you just shrug it and go back to writing another story about yeah, about <laughs> this
1: horrible person and these poor sentimental objects, Yeah, you know, these little sentimental pieces that around the kids, you know, it's like, it's, it's the kids yeah. are these little pure holiness sentimentality pods. And there's always these horrible adults.
2: But again, it makes
1: it does make a lot of sense, and it's disappointing. But again, a lot of people love Dickens. I really only like Tale of Two Cities, which is the least Dickens like. Yep, Dickens. And I in that book, I would say that he he falls apart when he starts to write kids. I think he writes kids horribly. Hmm. I think his he does the police are fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, he has fantastic characterizations of adults, and I think his children are. Like medieval children in paintings where there's, you know, Madonna and child and there's, you know, the little baby Jesus is like a 40 year old man yeah. shrunk down. Then <laughs> the painters didn't realize that the proportions of an infant are different than the proportions of an adult, you know? Yeah. And it just looks weird. That's how Dickens' child characters strike me. They strike me just completely out of
2: whack. Yeah. In Tale of Two Cities, he stole the plot from a friend, I believe, or an acquaintance probably uh, uh, or the
1: or from the french revolution
2: <laughs> <laughs> well i think it was another novel where he thought i can do this better and uh poached it which yep. is which is and i like
1: it and they it's great and the only uh the only part that's not is whenever the kids show up yeah you know it's like hey, and here are the fake the fakey fakes yeah but he is he is very overwrought dickens a, yeah. yeah yeah but dickens is very overwrought but, but, a, but i again, mean great formative to, yeah. like he obviously it was a a king of the genre and you can, you can read his stuff and see what he did and what he created. I and mean, he created the miniseries, He created all sorts of things that live on with us today. And that does not Like, it's interesting to know like, Oh wow. He was a broken character himself,
2: but that doesn't mean that doesn't that you, can't,
1: you can't, you yeah. can't enjoy great expectations or bleak house. Or the fact that CS Lewis uh, fell head over heels for the woman he fell for. Like you might say that, was not wise mm. if you were there in that moment and you were if you were Tolkien watching it trying to yeah. caution him but that does not in any way affect what I see on the page of the space trilogy or narnia oh, yeah. and overwhelmingly his life actually does add authority and veracity to what he says right you know but you could still see individual moments say, like, I don't think you're drinking too much i know it's christmas but like but, well what does that have to do with, you know, the book? So there's a lot of great books out there that if you decided to get a magnifying glass out and and pour over the author's life, you'd have to throw them away. You'd have to throw everything away. It does help when you're trying to understand a bleakness or a brokenness in the art and you discover that it aligns with the brokenness in the author. Which we all know all the authors have yeah. some brokenness there. Yep. And so that can be really helpful there. But I, I don't think, I really don't think I've ever done any kind of um, authorial life criticism as lit crit with my kids.
2: Yeah. It's it's sloppy. Yeah. It, uh, it usually is also when it's done, it's done very sloppily. So it will, you'll find something you dislike in the story itself and then go and cherry pick an aspect of the author's you know intellectual yeah. approach that you disagree with.
1: Yep. And then just reject all of it. Right. Out of hand. And so the, but especially with authors, you're not going to find a lot of great people back there. You know, they, in the post-romantic era especially, because everybody's prided themselves on their dysfunction for a very long time. I uh, (laughs) recently heard, I
2: didn't know this, Rosaria Butterfield gave a talk on Frankenstein. Okay. And she mentioned that Mary Shelley kept Percy Shelley's heart. Uh, after he died and it was discovered in a a book of his poetry a couple years after her death, just like a dried out piece of of a little husk of his heart. And uh,
1: well, that's happy.
2: (laughs) And I'm bringing that up because makes sense of Frankenstein. Go buy our worldview guide of it and Jake McTeal explain Uh it in more detail. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's the kind of thing where like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Right. Um, and I think there some author authorial discussion of why she
1: wrote it, where she wrote it helps, but also doesn't, you don't have to do that if you're enjoying the monster story. Yeah. But the, there are plenty of times that you're not going to be able to understand a book fully unless you figure out the historical context and the context in which the author was living and writing. Mm-hmm. So Dracula is that way. True. Frankenstein's that way. Uh, there's so, a lot of Southern. Yeah. Cause um, sometimes you'll read it and say, why is this a classic? And you need to know. Yep. Yeah. The southern, like Southern writers, Flannery O'Connor, and I mean, just every everything that's ever come out of the South. Graham Greene, yeah, from from Twain on, it's like the the culture pre-war, post-war, racial guilt, racial animosity, defeat, despair. Yeah, you know, like faux chivalry. There's there's so much to the historical context that will reveal uh, more about the book. Twain's a good one. How do you think
2: that? Yeah. How does Twain's God-hatingness affect <laughs> your
1: read of Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer? Not really at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, what it, I think too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you can bear it in mind, and you might you'll find some things, but you know, really not.
2: Yeah, I guess for me, it explains why the end of Huck Finn is so weird. That's yeah. That's about what. What it does kind of, for of fizzles? Me. Yeah. And yep. maybe maybe explains why, as a church person, you might feel occasionally targeted <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. in Huck Finn. Oh, because I, I am. <laughs> yeah, but because we don't mind. <laughs> uh, Jesus was fond of calling out hypocrites as well in
1: church. So as long as yep. you're not a hypocrite, I feel like that's water off a duck's back yep. as far as criticism. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny, though, as a kid especially, it, and I see, I see this in my own fans, where you don't care about the personality, but you don't care about the personality to such an extent that you never found out they wrote other things.
2: (laughs) Oh, the author.
1: Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, I've, I've had kids tell me, you know, the dragon's tooth is my very favorite book. I wish you'd write another one. What? (laughs) (laughs) okay. Yeah, I have. Um, I'll, all right. Like, I mean, and that's, it's just odd. And then I, but I still find myself doing that where, like, I really, I grew up loving uh, the Penrod stories. Oh, yeah. Uh, Booth Tarkington. Yeah. Penrod stories. I only recently found out in our local coffee shop that Booth Tarkington wrote huge quantities of books. Oh, right. And I, and I knew Penrod only. Not only did he write big quantities, I'm pretty sure he won the Pulitzer. He did? Yeah. I'm shocked. Yeah. I, exactly. And I was like, I read these in like fifth grade and, In junior high, and it never crossed my mind that he wrote anything other than this particular like boyhood comedy (laughs) genre. It's, it was, and
2: I thought he probably did three of them and was done.
1: (laughs) And it's, it's sort of like, um, discovering that Patrick McManus has written like really large, complicated novels. Whoa, that, yeah, oh, that is crazy. Whoa, like, I thought you wrote like outdoor life comedies about your first deer and things like that, which I love. So I'm still a little confused and needing to dive further into Booth Tarkington. Because yeah, Pat McManus has those murder mysteries that he did.
2: And you're like, why'd you write a a murder mystery? (laughs) A.A. Milne.
1: Yeah, another one. Uh, Winnie the Pooh. And what else did he write? Well, he wanted to be a mystery writer. And his mysteries could never be taken seriously because he achieved such towering greatness (laughs) with Winnie the Pooh. And then he could never shake it. And everybody adored Winnie the Pooh. And it was huge and still is huge. Now and he was just sad because he bought into that romantic idea that he needed to be a serious man and a serious artist and instead he'd made up this fantastic little stuffed animal make-believe world that everybody loved so much and so his his serious literary career was just nipped in the bud by that childish success. Oh man, only 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 humans could be disappointed by having created Winnie the Pooh <laughs> <together> and Piglet. <laughs> yeah, but he was, you know, he wrote murder mysteries. And that's the kind of thing that happens all the time. But all this to say is I'm still guilty of that exact thing where I look at the author so little that I can love a book or enjoy a book and and not discover at all that they wrote something yeah. else. But then on the other hand, there's other authors. I'll read something. I love it. I go find every single thing they've ever written. I read them all and they're all incredibly disappointing. Except and that one. Except for that one. Uh, that is not uncommon that is an extremely common well, thing.
2: Well, do you think you were, you just found a taste you liked in that one book or? No, I think the author achieved towering
1: greatness, you know, in on this, accident, at least in the two examples I can think of that. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> yeah. We'll um, just, <laughs> just keep that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to name names right now, but these guys where I read something, I was like, holy cow, this guy is phenomenal. And then, you know, I, I get to know them and, I read everything and I'm like, man, what was that? There was there was this magic sauce moment that came out of nowhere. And I can I can understand, I can relate to the need to write something different every time. Like I'm writing another book and it's not going to be the same as the last book. It has to change. It has to progress. It has to be different or else what's the point? I'm not just writing Hardy Boys novels. Um and I I understand that drive and that impetus and so i understand why other authors who you know have had some smash hit you know they they win the national book award or they they have something big going on and they deserved it you know the book's really good and then they set pen to paper again and all they're thinking about is how do i measure up to that success but i have to be different it has to be can't be the same i can't try to write the same novel again uh some of them never finish you know that's they're just kind of paralyzed by that if you have real big critical success others filmmakers do the same thing and then uh others just really go for something totally different but still them how do i do something that's still me but is not that hmm. and it's very very rare that that people achieve that you have to you have to look at creators like spielberg hmm. and you look at the the different points of success like can you run through that real quick? Like like starting out with... So th- think about you have a guy who could make, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan mm-hmm. and Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. And Jaws. And it's like Jurassic Park and Jaws. It's like, okay, but very different, right? Right. And Goonies, which doesn't measure up if you go back to watch it now, but watching it in a TV edited version when you're young or filtered now... <laughs> It could be really, it's really fun, but you're kind of like, whoa. And then his involvement in, um, his, his involvement in, uh, you know, Indiana Jones and right you look, just, he's gone all over the map and he's With been huge success, massive franchises, massive success, and they're different. And yet he understands something simple about story and fear and catharsis and, and adventure. Yeah. And wish fulfillment, you know, in, in all that. So you go and you try to find authors who've accomplished that, and it's not frequent. That is, yeah, that is really, really difficult to do. So people set out to do something new, something different. Why isn't it as big as my last thing? You know, why isn't it as successful? It's like, well, it wasn't quite as good. It didn't resonate in the same way, and you were you were too worried about doing something different, and you pulled yourself too far away from it. So I, I can relate to that because. One of the ways I try to keep it coherent is I try to write all of my stories consciously in the same world. So everything's connected, but I'm chasing different regions, regional mythology, global mythology. Um, I'm I'm just trying to change stuff up. So Ashtown is not the same as cupboards. I'm not sending out to write another story about somebody's discovery of their powers, right? Mm. I'm not trying to do that another kid who finds doors but a different size door. You know, yeah. It's maybe in Nebraska this time, not Kansas.
2: Yeah. Um, so you're not the kind of person who would like to go through each of the doors and write a novel about that door. That kind of thing.
1: Uh if they were totally different kids maybe. Right. Um but no, not really. I yeah. don't I wouldn't want to. Um so cre- creating Ashdown or writing Pike or Boys of Blur or Outlaws of Time. Uh, every one of them has is tackling a different task. And every one of them, I'm I really enjoy, it's weird to me, but I really enjoy how much every one of them has their has its own fan base that are loyal to that series or that book as their favorite and as the best of my canon. So the thing that makes me feel good and happy is when people are telling me Ashtown's my favorite series ever, or that's your best stuff, while the next person in the line at the signing is telling me you know, I wish you just keep writing 100 coverage books. That's all you ever did. You know, I read right. Ashdown to pass the time between the, my rereads of cupboards. Mm-hmm. and the next group of kids are telling me that outlaws of time is like way my best. Yeah. And that makes me happy. Like, so that they have, they're doing that. And that is a taste thing where they're, they're grabbing onto different ones and saying, this is your best. You shouldn't ever do the other ones. <laughs> right. That's the reason why I do the other ones. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like that's, I mean, it's it's a lot of fun, and that's that's true for Spielberg. That's true for a lot of people. So like Indiana Jones is better than Jurassic Park is better than Saving Private Ryan, better than Munich. You know, like all these different things that he's done and pursued. And then you look at failures though. So he's so prolific, and there's been a lot that he's been involved in that's come to nothing. Mm. Yeah, you don't see that or think about that because it's not top of the Wikipedia page. Yeah. And then you, th- so fun story. He's also just a genius businessman. I mean, he's made so many great business moves, but my favorite of which is uh, this is this is just industry gossip I've been told, but I assume it's true. I have no firsthand knowledge of this. <laughs> George Lucas was super depressed as he was making Star Wars uh, after he visited Spielberg's set. I'm trying to remember which, which space movie Spielberg was making at the time Close Encounters. Maybe, Hmm. Uh, was that him? Man, I'm blinking. Either way, Spielberg was making a space movie, and uh, George Lucas visited set and got super depressed about his his little space movie, and was insecure to Spielberg and said like, "Man, yours is amazing, and mine's just stupid." (laughs) And so Spielberg said, "Well, I'll trade you some ownership. Oh wow, I'll swap you points right now." Because I, I believe in yours. And they swapped they swapped some percentage points. And so Spielberg has ownership in the Star Wars franchise. Oh man. Just based, cause. Based off of a therapy gift, he gave George Lucas little swapsies just to prove that he believed in it. And he came out way, way, way ahead on that one. Because Nate oh. doesn't even remember whether it was close encounters. Yeah, because it's like, <laughs> what was it? What was the thing that Spielberg did that was a space movie? I'm turning I think it was Close Encounters. But uh If it wasn't, don't scold me. Um, Yeah. Anyway, so as far as, I think we closed the loop on why artists are broken people. kind Right. Mostly because they want to be and because they think they have to be and also because they all a little bit are. Yeah. And it's whether they feed feed it and inflate it and brand with it. When you're
2: good at something, you are more into it than everyone
1: else. Than is reasonable. Than is reasonable. Yeah. Yep. So If we're I mean, running
2: laws of averages, you're, <laughs> yes. you're not going to be in the center.
1: And we can put reasonable in scare quotes if we want to. Yeah. Tolkien was more in the Middle Earth than was reasonable, which is <laughs> one, one of the reasons- That's an understatement. <laughs> one of the reasons why it's such a you know fun series to read, but it's also has led other authors astray who are building fantasy worlds. So like, well, Tolkien was way too into his world, so I should be way too into this world. Mm. Therefore, it'll be great. And once again, we are affirming the consequence. Right. Yeah. So good. There we go. That's it. Next time we are actually talking about Ashdown. Yeah, we're starting off. Okay, Ashdown burials next time. I'm uh, excited
2: about this one. We do have probably the most questions for
1: Ashdown. Yeah, I'm sure. Ashdown is generally the uh, well, usually the series <laughs> that gets the most fan reaction, even though it's not the biggest seller.
2: I was at uh, the ACCS conference last week and had. Two uh, of your readers come up and fact check me on a bunch of stuff from Ashtown. And I said, you're going to have to message us. (laughs) They were cute. One brother was accusing you of making a mistake. The
1: other one was defending you. Oh, yeah, nice. What was the mistake? Let's talk uh, about it.
2: I can't remember. It was so (laughs) specific that I said, you got a message. You got a message. Well, hopefully
1: we can cover that because I can promise you that I never never ever made mistakes. a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, no. These, In cupboards, sure. I made mistakes with Ashtown. Ashtown no, of never. course not. Yeah, you were you hit, you'd hit <laughs> your stride by then. <laughs> yeah, that's that is funny. Yeah. I actually there are uh, was it about Latin? Nope. Okay. It wasn't the Latin one, yeah. That's too bad. The Latin one is my personal favorite. Yeah. You should explain it though. No, right I'll
2: now should we save it for next I think, week? I think you should save it for next week. Okay, we're going to we'll save We'll see if anyone can find it by next week. <laughs> yeah anyone the, else <laughs> the latin
1: scare quotes mistake
2: right <laughs> the kind of thing that used to bother brian i <laughs>
1: used to bother it, it you used to
2: bother me and then i realized
1: i like that you referred yourself in the
2: third person there <laughs> <laughs> it's because i'm distancing myself from, from the that previous who brian really who really been... cared about it <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah okay there we go until next time yeah i only had to say it out loud before i knew that you were correct <laughs>
1: Fantastic. See you.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories or Soul Food podcast. If you're someone highly invested in kid fiction and finding the best stories for your kids and you haven't downloaded the Canon app, I want to encourage you to download and subscribe today. You can find things on there such as Christine Cohen's The Winter King, Ethan Nicole's Brave Ollie Possum, Peter Lighthart's Wise Words, a book on Narnia from Douglas Wilson titled What I Learned in Narnia, and much, much more. Download the app today wherever you get your apps and subscribe.